0: Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, this morning again, is where we're going to focus our attention on applications. Applications to a grand book, but applications that are potent and personal nevertheless. What we're talking about centers in on the first three words, four words of Verse 10, Hebrews 13, verse 10. We have an altar. Begins, we have an altar. Now, what does that mean? There are many different opinions and perspectives on exactly what altar that is that the New Testament author is talking about. We're talking about the New Testament church, so Why do we need an altar? Is the altar in heaven? Is it down here on earth somewhere? What is it that we have? Well, as you open up the paragraph before us, you're going to find out that the altar is speaking to the immediate access that we have with our living Lord. When you're talking about applications, there's nothing more specific to be applied to the Christian life regarding this, and that is how vibrant... How exciting, how natural, how normal is your Christian experience and walk with the living Lord? In other words, do you go to the altar? Do you go to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ? Hebrews gives the clear word to us that we have immediate access Hebrews 2 10 Hebrews 10 19 we don't have to work through the law we go right into the holy of holies because the law has been answered in Christ and so if you're like me you ask yourself how is my spiritual life going in terms of my prayer life in terms of my worship Look down at verse 15. It gives the measure of what your Christian life should look like. It says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, how sustainable is that? How realistic is that for you to be held to the biblical command? And obviously it's commanded, so it must be doable in the Christian life, right? It's commanded, so by God's grace, we should live this command, which is to offer up continual sacrifices of praise to God. How do we do it? It reminds me a lot of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without what? Ceasing, ceaseless prayer, a prayer consciousness, a Christian life where you're communing with the living Lord day to day, hour to hour, minute by minute, in a prayer consciousness, in a in a sacrifice of praise mentality. How do we do that? These are the final applications that come under leadership. And what I said last week is that the leader in front of us that's giving these commands is the author of Hebrews. We talked about from verse 7 how leaders lead based on the authority of God's word. They lead through a lifestyle that's commensurate with God's word. They practice what they preach. And then in verse 8... It's under a yieldedness that leadership comes under Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. His lordship, his headship. And now in verses 9 through 16, this leader is warning the church not to be led astray by strange or varied teachings. It's the leadership to protect the flock from false gospels. And the false gospel that was being protected from is hinted at in verse 9. It's kind of vague to actually know what's going on in the church at this time. It seems like that the church, being ethnically Jewish, um, Jewish New Testament Christians who'd been converted, those who were probably in Jerusalem and then some who were scattered maybe to Italy because of persecution, they were tempted to digress back into their old covenant system. And specifically in dietary laws like um, outlined in Leviticus chapter 11, you can eat this, you can't eat this, you can have bacon, you can't wait, you can't have bacon because it's a hoofed animal, on and on it goes. And so those kind of digressions are ways that I think the church was being tempted to try to prop itself up spiritually to say, I'm depleted, under-suffering, I'm, I'm kind of depleted spiritually right now, and I need something. I need to grab onto something. So I'm going to grab onto a dietary law, kind of what Peter was struggling with in Acts 10, you know. I, I can't eat that, Lord. He's saying, kill and eat. You need to be free in grace. Don't go back to works. Don't go to a legal system or legalism. Go to grace. And that's the point that we see before us in the immediate context. Again, verse nine, do not be led away from diverse and strange teachings. Don't go back, don't go into some strange false gospel or half gospel. It says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? Grace, don't be led astray But instead, get your heart stayed on grace. Don't be devoted to foods, the end of verse 9, devotion. Don't worship in a legalistic way. Don't be the haves and the have-nots in terms of what you're going to do or not do. Don't do that. Don't worship that old system. Worship God through grace. Be strengthened in grace. And I want to just tie this together. With the challenge that I've laid before us, how is your spiritual life? How are you doing in terms of your devotion to the Lord? Are you going to the altar? And is it enough? I know I had to evaluate my own heart this week. I had to practice what I was going to preach by saying, How am I doing devotionally? What's motivating me to pray and praise? Well, one thing motivates it's grace. A heart that's strengthened in grace motivates continual worship, continual sacrifices of praise that are found in verse 15. The sacrifice of praise comes from grace, a heart that is set on grace. Now, verses 10 through 16 is really proving this out. The author of Hebrews is tying the book together together if you will, by saying, I'm going to present before you two ultimate sacrifices. The Old Testament ultimate sacrifice was the yearly sacrifice called what? Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. Now, there were regular sacrifices for sin offerings that were given regularly. And then there was an especial sacrifice once a year that was designated to be a covering an atonement for the nation of Israel called Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And the author is comparing that Day of Atonement ceremony to the New Testament ultimate sacrifice, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, our living Lord, who died to cover all of our sins for all of eternity. The once for all sacrifice versus the yearly Day of Atonement sacrifice. Which sacrifice wins? Well, let's see. Look at verse 10. It says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Let's stop there. Again, this is the Yom Kippur sacrifice, once a year sacrifice that's being spoken of. Hebrews 9, 7. Uh, The high priest would go in once a year and not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This is a covering sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. Leviticus 16, 14 and 15 further unpacks the very details of the high priest and what they did and how they conducted themselves in the day of atonement. They would first kill a bull outside of the, in the outer court area, outside of the inner sanctum. And they would do that for themselves. They would do that to cover their own sins so they could enter in at risk of death through the veil or around the thick curtain and go into the Holy of Holies. How dangerous would this have been? Right, Everything was fastidiously done. And the goat would be taken in on behalf of the people. One goat would later be sent out into the wilderness free to live as the scapegoat to represent uh, the fact that the sins are forgiven. They're running away. But this goat was to be killed that was in the arms of the high priest in the inner sanctum. And that blood was shed in that room. The blood would have been smeared on the altar. It's various specific points by the thumb and and on the horn of the altar and all of those different things. And that was done for the people on the mercy seat. Leviticus 16 verse 15, it says, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the bull and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the, with the blood of the bull. And then catch this, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Now later down in verse 27 of Leviticus 16 says, and the bull For the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. What's carried outside the camp? The bull carcass and the goat carcass, the bull body and the goat body out of the camp. Blood stays in, in the inner sanctum. It's the symbol of atonement and the carcasses are brought outside the camp now for regular sin offerings leviticus gives the right and privilege for that priest that high priest to actually eat the offering this is good meat i'm going to eat it it's sacrificed it's been burned it's been cooked (laughs) it's a barbecue it's time to eat on the day of atonement the carcasses were the ultimate symbols of sin's defilement So the blood was spilt to show that the sacrifice was genuine. It was a genuine gift. But the bodies of those animals were the picture and symbol of sin's defilement, and it needed to be taken outside of the camp. All of this is important to tie this together and understand the comparisons and the contrast to the Old Testament ultimate sacrifice with the New Testament ultimate sacrifice. Day of Atonement with Christ. You have to compare and contrast these two, so you have to understand what's going on. So we have an altar that we have a right to, verse 10, where we have access, but it says of the high priest, those who serve the tent, they have no right to eat. They're not going to eat that meat that's taken outside of the camp. That's the point. This was acceptable in the old covenant system. This was a right symbolism in the Old Testament symbolism. It was, it was ripe for what was going on. But this now no longer applies in the new covenant since Christ. It doesn't apply. And to understand this, you have to understand the inside and outside spatial language that's going on. You have something going inside the tent and then something going outside the tent, outside of the city, outside of the walls. Super important to understand that. Sin offerings were unclean in the sense that the meat of the offering was unclean. So you have something that's holy and something that's unholy, something that's inside and something that's outside. So all of this is to build a case for why we need grace, not law. Now, how does he do that? Look at verse 12. It says, so... Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Point two. So you have the, the old altar versus the new altar. And we're showing why the, the new altar is better than the old altar. This new altar is in verse 12. And what I want to show you is something that pops off the page. It's a little bit incongruous with the flow of Hebrews. When I think of Christ as the ultimate high priest and the sacrifice, I think of him dying as the sacrifice and being slain inside the inner sanctum just to tie up the imagery there, right? To tie the picture together. You have the high priest bringing in the sacrifice to the mercy seat. That's the cross, right? Well, here it's different. And until I unpacked it this week and really analyzed the text I didn't fully see the implications of what the author was saying and doing and I want you to see this in this case Jesus is paralleled as the as the one who died as the carcass that's brought out like the bull and the goat that's brought outside of the city that's the parallelism to Jesus in this text in this case Yes, Jesus spilt his blood, but the picture of him spilling his blood is that of him being crucified outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. You remember that in Mark 15, in in the gospels, in John 19, it says that they led him out to crucify him. Mark 15, verse 20. He was crucified. Simon of Cyrene, a North African, um, probably Jew, was the one who carried... Christ's cross, verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha. Where's Golgotha? It's outside of the city gates. Everyone that was crucified, every murderer, every thief, every person who was worthy of execution was taken outside of the city because it was a picture of something that was sinful and defiled that needed to go outside, not die inside. You see that spatial language? And the author is saying, look, the Jesus that we serve, the Jesus that gives you grace. If you want to associate with him, he's not inside the city. He's outside of the city. He's not inside the law. He's not inside some kind of dietary system that you're trying to cling to or some kind of false religion and false gospel that you're trying to live. No, grace is outside, not inside. Do you see that? That's what he's doing. Be strengthened in grace and look to Jesus who suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Where did Jesus spill his blood? Outside the city. Where was his carcass metaphorically burned like the bull and the goat? Outside the city. Thomas Schreiner said that Jesus is a picture of something that's unclean. We know 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He never sinned, but he became sin for us. He took sin on himself for us. And guess where we find him? Not inside religion, not in some sort of pretentious, holier-than-thou state, not legalistically requiring things for people to follow. No, he's outside Why is that important? Because for you to be strengthened in grace, you've got to realize how sinful you really are and that you need to run to him, he who became sin on your behalf outside the city. He wanted to meet you right where you are, right? Within your own sinfulness that you needed to admit and repent of. He met you and he meets you. That grace gospel is what shoots sacrificial praise out of my heart. Anything less than that, I check out. I'm just saying. If it's just clinical, if it's just doctrine on a page, if it doesn't get to my heart in terms of I was dirty and I've been made clean, then I don't worship. That's what this says. Be strengthened by grace. Be strengthened by grace. What does grace look like? Well, again, look at this in verse 12. So Jesus suffered. The church was suffering during this time. Jesus also suffered. The church was suffering. Jesus had already suffered, but the author is transposing this and saying, look, Jesus suffered. Think almost like a flashback as you're suffering. Remember his suffering. Remember that. We're suffering. We're going through things. Identifying with Jesus creates a reproach, it creates a difficulty and he suffered outside the gate. Why? In order to sanctify, in order to hagiadzo, to set you apart, to make you clean, to set you apart in his mind forever and all of eternity to be saved. Do you see that? Men, women, children, listen. This is high doctrine, but children, listen in. This is the gospel. You are saved by God's Grace, it's a free gift that he gives to you to cleanse you from your sins. All the evil in your heart is cleansed in a moment if you believe on Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And that's what he did by dying on the cross to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's a beautiful gift. He took on scorn and shame and suffering and pain. All to cleanse us, to do what animal sacrifices could never do. So point two, why do you go to Jesus? Why would we run to Jesus? Point one is why is the new altar better than the old? Hopefully that's proven to you. Wasn't a temporal sacrifice anymore. It's an eternal sacrifice, a once for all sacrifice. It's far superior to anything that could be done in the old. But why Is this motivating for us to run to Jesus? Why do we go to Jesus? Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Well, first of all, we go to him because we've understood that grace is better than the law. We understand that he's outside and grace is there to find it. I've kind of already made that point. I think this was what drove the early disciples to follow Jesus, frankly. They understood. Think about it, Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, Peter. I mean, later the apostle Paul, they were all steeped in religious obligation, religious expectation. You know what it's like to be stifled in a situation where you feel the heaviness and pressure of those things, pressure of expectations, pressure of unmet expectations, pressure of failing, pressure of feeling like you were set up to fail and you fail and you fail. And then in light of all of that religion, in light of all of that confusion, in light of all of that heaviness, there's Jesus. How can you not run to him? You know, John 1 is where Philip found Jesus. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, this is his, you know, his friend, his, his colleague, and he says, Nathanael, we have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip's convinced. Nathaniel's not, verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. It's the idea in parallel to this, can anything good come from the area where they burn carcasses outside of the walls? Can anything good come out of relig- outside of religious obligation? Yes, there's Jesus. Grace motivates worship. Grace is it. It warms the heart. You know, God is big. He's great big and his grace is great big. God is bigger than you think and his grace is nearer than you know. Think about that. His grace is everything. It's everything. He gives us eternal life. Verse 14 speaks of why do you go to Jesus? Because look what he gives you. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, if this is just fatalism, I'm turned off. I have no time for it. Okay, we'll just survive now. It's just going to be a short time anyway and live for heaven. If it's just said that way, that actually does not prompt continual sacrificial praise. I have to believe that I've received some incredible gift. And out of that gratitude, I worship. And you know what that gift is? It's eternal life, eternal life. That's what verse 14 is talking about. Yes, this world is passing away. Time is running out. It will let you down. It's a hard world to live in. It's sin cursed. And we experience that. And then there are joys and there are pleasures and there are righteous things to enjoy in this world. But frankly what supersedes all the highs and lows of this world is eternal life we have the kingdom of god now righteousness peace and joy in our hearts the kingdom of god is now in our hearts and in our lives and in our experience with other christians and then we have the kingdom to come which is forever heaven but it's experienced now Not having a lasting city means that we enjoy the kingdom now. We worship now. And we'll worship through all of eternity. This is when you take your heart in your hand and go to God. There's a lot of people that are trying to find eternal life not through Jesus. Everybody actually is, if you look at our marketing culture Everybody's marketing health, everybody's marketing diet, everybody's marketing how can you extend your life longer through medications, everybody, there's a lot of marketing in terms of plastic surgery and elective, elective surgeries, I'm not saying anything wrong in terms of diet, exercise, or surgeries, I'm just saying there is a movement, a marketing movement that sells eternal life in a bottle, hey, you can live longer. You can feel like you live longer. You can subdue yourself in a way where you feel like you're living longer. You can have more energy. You can do this, you can do that. All of these are subsets of a desire for the fountain of youth. People have always been looking for the fountain of youth. I did a quick Google search, and it speaks of Herodias in the 5th century B.C., Alexander, 3rd century A.D., Prester John, early Crusades, 11th and 12th century A.D. And then you have the exploration in the Caribbean and the Bahamas and all of this leading up to Ponce de Leon, who kind of takes credit for looking for the Fountain of Youth. And he came through Puerto Rico and came up to Florida, and the Native American said, you know, actually the Fountain of Youth isn't here. It's back in the Bahamas which is just hilarious. Or, oh, I, well, here, okay, well, you know. That's what our culture does. Where's the fountain of youth? Where's the next fix? Where's my thing? Not gonna find it. Only by faith do we have the lasting, a city that's not lasting, but a city that is to come, and we believe in it, and it actually changes us and motivates us in our walk and in our life. You remember Moses Uh, who in Hebrews 11, he was choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why did he choose God's people rather than riches now? It would be like choosing Egyptian eternal life now. How How do you give all that up? Well, he realized there was greater wealth elsewhere promised to him. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. He saw something better. This is the gospel. It's where we, we know that we're blood bought and we have the promise of eternal life. Jesus, he, he captured all of this saying that this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God whom you have sent You know, God, who is eternal, is really saying this. God is transcendent. He's outside of time and space. I was meditating on that, walking my neighborhood, trying to practice this verse of offering continual sacrifices. And I was thinking, what captures it? Is it just me thinking, okay, life is going to get good once I go to heaven? No. It's now. God transcends it all. He's bigger than time. He's bigger than space. God's bigger than you think and nearer than you might even realize. And his grace is great big. And when you realize he's walking with you and he's this big God, that's when eternal life floods into your heart. That promise does. Super important to understand. All right, let's go to point three. Why do you do what is otherwise impossible to do or you thought impossible? Worshiping continually? Look at verse 15. Through him then let us continually. I don't want to under mine or discredit that word continually, one iota, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. This is living in the spirit, a continual sacrifice of praise to God. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint is what it's called. That same word for continual sacrifice is the same word used in all kinds of Old Testament references to thank offerings or thanksgiving offerings. Offerings that were free will offerings. They were regulated by God's standards in the Mosaic law, but they were completely, catch this, voluntary offerings. Now, you had to give a sin offering, and you wanted to participate in the the effects of the day of the atonement. You wanted to worship God in that regard, but the free will offering was a thank offering. It's like our giving of time and talent and treasure but also our worship it's just free will offerings that we give to the lord it over it's an overflow of gratitude do you see that just look with me quickly as we come to our close it says the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name it's where your heart is near the lord and you go you know what at the name of Jesus, Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, kurios, master. That's the name of Jesus. When people say, I'm speaking the name of Jesus, it really means to say, you are Lord over everything. And that's where we worship You know, he is Lord of everything. People are very concerned about their mortality right now. FYI, I don't know if newsflash, a lot of the world is sort of united under one concern. I mean, all of language is broken down, all of different, you know, barriers and blocks and ethnicities and gender and all those things. All those things have melted for the moment under the idea of self-preservation. I want the fountain of youth. I need to live forever, right? Where did the verse go? It's appointed unto a man once to die and after that, the judgment. God's in charge of our life and our death and we need to be responsible. But hear this, we need to worship God, come what may. The fruit of our lips. We also need to worship God in sacrifice. Verse 16 says, we dare not neglect. It says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Yeah, I can't share what I have. My resources are limited. No, we still share. We koinonia, we give. To those in need, we share. And that's a sacrifice of praise. Where does that come from? By believing in amazing grace. By doing this, running to Jesus outside the camp. Go to the one who took your sin and died an ignominious, dark, Hurtful, agony-filled, suffering-filled, sin on him, cursed self, death, who met you where you are, right in your sinfulness, took your place outside the camp, died with the carcasses for you. That's grace. And that grace motivates us to worship. I challenge all of us. Let's be continual sacrificers of praise to God.